0: Hi, this is Coach Colette. And with this episode of Coach Chat, we tap into a mission and a belief that I really resonate with. Too often, it seems like mental health and well being is perceived to be something that only a privileged few get to achieve. And I don't believe this and neither does my guest, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. She's the founder of the mental health nonprofit, the Acoma Project, which provides mental health outreach and care for youth of color. Their mission is to help these youth and their families to achieve optimal mental health. Dr. Alfie, defines optimal mental health as the ability to recognize mental health challenges when they arise, understand where to go for help, and support friends and loved ones to also seek help. So in this podcast, we talk all about mental health issues that youth and young adults are facing, particularly in marginalized communities. You'll also hear that we have a lot of things in common in our personal lives, in addition to sharing this mission to support young and more senior BIPOC individuals to thrive and not just survive. So buckle up, get ready, and listen to this episode of Coach Chat. So I am super excited for this episode of Coach Chat. I am here with Dr. Alfie Breland Noble, who is the founder of an amazing mental health nonprofit called the Acoma Project, and she's also a fellow podcaster, but she does video podcasting, so I really got to give her her props for that, which is called Couched in Color with Dr. Elfie. So welcome to this episode.
1: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, I was so excited when I saw you on that webinar that you presented a couple of months ago. And I was like, yeah, I got to get this energy on my show. So I would love for you first to define, or is there a meaning for a coma and share with our listeners what, what that means or what sort of the history of that word term concept
1: Of course. So I'll try to make a very long story short. I do love to talk, so I'm going to fair warning. Um, That's probably why I'm in the field that I'm in. But uh, in 1999, I went to the American Psychological Association Convention. Dr. David Satcher, one of my idols, was there presenting about um, mental health in communities of color. And he was one of the first people, even though he's not a mental health professional himself, as a physician to talk about it. And at the meeting, he talked about things like lack of access to care. He talked about socioeconomic status, trauma, all these kinds of things. And it hit me, we can create all kinds of tools to take care of people's mental health, but if we can't get people to come in and use them, how are the tools going to be of use to especially underrepresented, underserved communities? So that was my idea. That field, I, have a, I did two postdocs at Duke in the Department of Psychiatry. That field is a very teeny tiny specialized field called mental health services research and mental health interventions research. And I'm a disparities researcher. So I said, okay, let's put all that together. I'm gonna come up with a way to get Black people and other people of color to come into treatment voluntarily. Somebody else needs to fix if the treatments are good. I can't do everything, but I can get folks in. That became the nexus of a coma. And a coma is from the West African symbol, Acoma, which is a heart. Um, And I added A and made up this acronym. And the acronym is African American Knowledge optimized for mindfully healthy adolescents and now all these years later right 20 years later literally 20 years later, we are a coma um, and we just in this in our symbol uh, has African looking lettering right we use purple for our uh, to represent royalty and it has a beautiful red heart in the middle because we want everybody to know that at the center of our work we see young people we value young people. And we want young people to know that optimal mental health is something they should have as well. So that's a very long story condensed, really short. That's what the acronym was. That's still the spirit of what we do. In a coma, we feel my passion is young people and young adults is for all young people to know that their mental health is important and that someone cares about it.
0: That's so amazing. And I love love these history stories. And I know you as a podcaster as well. It's like so... Amazing to be able to be taken back in time and then sort of bring it forward into the present. And what I really loved what you said about if people don't come in for treatment, right, like that they're not going to get the help that we need. And I know that you are really aware of the stigma around mental health and well being. And so, have you seen that shift in the
1: years that you've been in this space? I had funny this morning I was thinking about just creating a benchmark for my age. I am the same age as Jay-Z and J Lo. So that's why I, I like to tell young people that because I want them to understand, look, we still hip and we still cool too, even though we of a certain age. Let y'all know. But you know, being of that generation, I know as a Gen Xer, these were definitely definitely not conversations that we had. And being an African American woman, right? A black woman, we definitely didn't have these conversations. So fast forward to now. Well, going back to my benchmark with Jay-Z, he gets on national television with Van Jones two years ago and is talking about trauma and, of course, people need therapy. And I'm just blown away, right? Because when I started having community conversations with young people, we literally had a presentation called Hip Hop and Mental Health. And we would talk about, like, the ghetto boys. My mind is playing tricks on me. What does that mean? What do those lyrics mean? That kind of thing. And that was a way in the early 2000s to sort of pull young people into the conversation. You don't necessarily have to do it in that targeted way anymore. You literally can just come in and start having conversations because of I think one reason millennials. These young black and brown millennials are all over these conversations about mental health. So while that's important, and I give them so many props and so much kudos for doing it, I do still think you have these generations sandwiched around them, right? So Gen Z you know, maybe a little bit less likely to talk about because they're young. And then Gen X and older, the baby boomers and veterans, they're still not talking about it. So I think in some ways, millennials have really opened the conversation, particularly in communities of color. I also think not but, and I think we still have a long ways to go in terms of people being willing to take that step beyond acknowledging that mental health is something we need to address and actually getting care. I think that's still where those nuggets of stigma lie. Well, yeah, it's good for other people. And I'm all about taking care of mental health, but let's do self care. Cause I'm really not trying to go see no doctor, anybody or coach or whatever. Right. I'm going to do this on my own. But that's what I would say. I've seen some shifts, but some stuff is feels like it's almost intractable sometimes.
0: It's, it's so ironic hearing what you said, which is totally on point. I'm, recalling when I first got my stress management certification and, you know, I'm in New York, you're in DC. So, you know, New Mm -hmm. Yorkers, we wear our busy, Mm -hmm. everything badges (laughs) on our sleeves. Right. And I remember back in the day, this was, you know, back in 2011, when I got that first certification and I would say, oh, I'm, I'm becoming a stress management coach. And people would be like, oh my God, that's so amazing that you're doing that. Like as, and almost like, for others, I'm good. Right, stay but, over there. Mm-hmm. But but you know, I'm good. But you could there. I'm sure there are lots of people that need your help. So it is interesting that sense of how we can distance ourselves from what we are going through. And I, and I I definitely agree about the millennials and and people in the media sharing their experiences. I mean, if Michelle Obama can say that she has potentially low-grade depression. I mean, that's yes. huge, huge, huge. Are you seeing that with the people that you are working with or that your organization is working with, that there is more willingness to seek help, more willingness to find out, okay, what is it that I could need? How could I get help for what I'm going through?
1: I think, I, I think it cuts both ways. Like you said, uh, I was, I have a couple of heroes who are black women outside of my family, women of color in general. Two, everybody knows Maxine Waters. She is just the penultimate. she's just it Auntie for me. I just love her. I just adore her. I met her once in the an airport and I was a completely fangirl. I like bust her table. She had, a, we were in the lounge and she had a little plate of food. I was like, can I please take that up for you? I was like, I was honored to take the woman's plate with the trash. So I was so, oh my God. Anyway, so I'd love her. And Michelle Obama who's like, I adore her. And so what I find is that you have these watershed moments where somebody like Michelle Obama, who's kind of figured that she is, gets on, and I I got so into it, I literally went and pulled the transcript and read it. I was like, did she really just say low-grade depression? And just to make sure, and we did a little thing about it on my Instagram page where I talked about how important it was. With Michelle Obama being Gen X, right? Like I am, like we are, it was huge because I think it helped our generation understand this is stuff that we deal with too so in that sense i do feel like it is more and more opening up the conversation i think where this has nothing to do with michelle obama where we lose a step is that the stigma is still associated with like you were describing when you you got your training it's still removed from us so it's nice to talk about mental health it's nice to be able to articulate so i for full disclosure I am a poster child for generalized anxiety disorder. I am the ultimate worrywart. So I try to be very open every time I have a chance to say to people, this is what, I mean, they can't see me, but this is what anxiety looks like. And I get people, all races, ethnicities, genders, sexual orientation, like in tears at the end of my talks. It was like, oh my God, like, yeah, somebody understands. I'm like, yeah, I understand. Just because I do this work doesn't mean I'm not affected by it. So in the one sense, it's nice that we are, it's like baby steps, We're able to say that these are things that are important. But just like you said, when you were describing getting your certification, congratulations, by the way, we have to celebrate those victories for women of color. It's still not something I apply to me. So yeah, that's nice that you, and then the other thing that cracks me up, I'm sure you've experienced this. People say, oh, I'm so proud of you for getting that. And then, you know, long pause, and then they start asking questions. So, you know, I have this thing going on where I blah, 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 right? Trying to get, I call it free therapy. And my husband used to tease me. He would say, you know, some of your, this was back when I was in grad school. Some of these people are your friends because they're really trying to get free therapy out of you. And I was like, huh? And I didn't get it, but he was totally right. So I still think the stigma is around actually being willing to acknowledge and apply the concept of the import of mental health to ourselves. It's nice for those other people out there But I I really want to see people start talking about what do I need to do with professional help. And that's that's another piece. I'll do self-care, right? I'll read some books. I'll get on Instagram. This is all of us of all generations. And I'll follow Alex L., who's awesome, by the way, right? Or I can't remember, Nawab. I can't can't remember her first name, Nawab, who does stuff about boundaries. I'll follow that. But I'm not coming to Coach Colette. I'm not going to Dr. Alfie because- I don't need that much help. So that's where the stigma is. We know it's important, but this idea of applying it to ourselves and going to seek help, I think that's where we fall down.
0: Right. And the data does support that, that we're twi- Black women are twice as likely to have depression and, you know, less than half as likely to actually seek the help. I think of it as like tire kickers, people that are kind of like, oh, let's check out and see what this is about. So I guess, yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is there are two things. One, all of us, some of us or that feel comfortable being honest about our own journeys, right? Like for me, I would say what's been interesting is having been sheltering in place alone for all of these months, it's bringing me way up close and personal with myself in ways that I could not have even imagined. And I, and I do share some of those journeys on my Unplug segment. And that was the reason for creating that segment on the podcast to be able to document that. So, so then how is it that we get to the next step where people are willing to say, okay, I see that it's not a bad thing. I see that it's not abnormal. I see that I'm not quote crazy because I have these issues. Then how do we get to saying, okay, I'm willing
1: to dip my toe in the water and check this out. Absol- oh, it's such a wonderful question, and I really appreciate it, because that is the crux of my research. It's an area that we call treatment engagement, how do we engage people in treatment. And that comes out of, just because I know there are going to be some people listening who will say, well, that's not really what treatment engagement is. It comes out of the substance abuse and substance abuse prevention literature, where they describe in two phases. One is treatment initiation. What does it take to get the person in the door? And then engagement is what does it take to keep them there? In behavioral health, um, mental health, I should say, we really take treatment engagement to mean all of that together. So we don't have the level of specificity that uh, our substance abuse peers do. So treatment engagement in mental health is really about figuring out the tools, figuring out the messaging, right? That's what we do with the coma. So we have a book um, that I've shared with you, Community Engagement for Mental Health and Racially Diverse Populations. And it's all about the strategies for how you get people in. And some of the themes of that, I think are universal for many different communities of color. And they involve things like regular ongoing conversations. So, What does that look like? That looks like like in faith communities, for example, which is some of my work is in faith communities. In Black communities, whatever, whatever the ethnicity is under the label Black, including Black Latinos. And in Latinx communities, Church and faith are huge, right? But those of us who are in the mental health profession are not often taught to be open about that part, right? It's like it's a dichotomy. You either are a pastoral counselor or you're a psychologist, not both. That's not true. And that's not how people function in the world. So part of it, one strategy is collaborating in the spaces where people already are to open up the conversation, to let people get a taste. So that looks like partnering with people with lived experience going into faith communities, and letting the people with lived experience talk about what it was like to identify their illness, whatever that is, depression, anxiety, suicidality, and then what was their process for getting connected with care, and then how was the care for them? Because if you somebody who looks like you, thinks like you, breathes like you, talks like you, and and they say they went to see Coach Colette or Dr. So-and-so, then you are that much more likely. Now, we have data that demonstrates this, so that's one. I think another, is continuing to normalize that's one way of normalizing, but another is continuing to normalize the conversation so that it's an integral part of your day-to-day life. It's not you just go as an intervention once you figure out something's wrong. Right. I have a girlfriend who's had a two, we were professors together years ago. And I and this now, this is what I do. And I thought it was the oddest thing in the world that she had a regular psychologist, even when nothing was wrong, right? I'm like, oh I, who people do that? And she taught me that, Um, and so shouts out to her. And so it's also that idea that you go, you dip your toe in the water when there's nothing wrong or before there's something wrong so that you understand, you know, with all clarity and with all your wits about you, not in the throes of stress and, you know, that kind of thing and and just depressed or or super anxious, you understand what it's like. That way, when it's like kicking the tires, like you said, that way, when it's crisis time, you already have an idea of what it's going to be like. So those are two examples. There are many, many more. Most of them are in my book. Those are two examples I would say.
0: What I love about that is the the visibility of, like you were saying, someone who looks like me Mm -hmm. and hearing about their experiences. And I really especially love the aspect of not just when something is wrong, right? That sense of, you know, I do EFT tapping and- Awesome. And one of the things- you know, you hear is when I do a workshop or when I work with clients, it's, oh yeah, how many people know EFT, you know, 50% of the room will raise their hands. And then I say, okay, and then when was the last time you did EFT and everybody's like, mm-hmm. right. and And again, and that's not to shame people, but just that sense of, right, like, and and again, and maybe EFT isn't the exact right example for what you're talking about, because there is the aspect of digging into, you know, past traumas and hurts and wounds, Um, but yeah, that example of being able to get some type of support or even, I know you were talking about the difference between self-care, but being able to do something for yourself that supports and buoys you outside of just a a crisis moment. Um, I really appreciate that. And I guess in some ways, you know, I guess t- technology supports that, you know, there are apps uh, out there uh, that are doing that. I think uh, of Shine Text, um, you oh, know, yeah. of the sisters that created that app and yes. the ability to be able to get, again, that's a little more sort of receiving information, but still that right. sense of being able to get guidance so that
1: you are almost level setting where you are. That's right. And you're I'm so glad you mentioned the technology, because the younger people are, the more likely that's the first place they're gonna go. So you mentioned the Shine app. I was just on an NC2A call yesterday and somebody brought up Shine. There are also apps like the Not Okay app, these two African American teenagers from Atlanta. I love those babies, Charlie and Hannah. They know I love them. I have to share them with their mama, but they mine. And then I think about the MindRight app. These are all apps created by people of color. To really try to address exactly what you're talking about. What are those needs that we have that are unique that you want to be able to account for? I will also say I've been talking about mindfulness apps for years, but the thing that was missing, and we'll be honest, up until recently, I think Shine tries to address this. You didn't see the diverse, the beautiful diversity reflected within the apps. This year I've seen it, right? So we've had this shift and you can hear the voices, right? So I love hearing voices with accents because that lets me know this is for everybody. Everybody has an opportunity to benefit from mindfulness, but that's new. So there's one other I wanna mention that's very therapeutic. I'm not endorsing him or, you know, saying anything other than I just know of it and I think it's fantastic. This is an African brother named Eric Coley, who everybody knows now, because of the Ayana Therapy app, where they, it's basically talk, talk space for brown people and queer people, where they literally try to match you based on some of those qualities, which I think is important because you've got to see somebody who reflects some aspect of your experience to get over another one of those barriers. And one of those barriers for those of us who are people of color and including queer folks, including people with different ability statuses, is when I sit down in front of that person who doesn't look like me, right? If I'm black and I sit in front of that white person, am I going to have to explain what it means to be a dark-skinned chocolate girl growing up in the air. I don't feel like explaining that. That's why I'm here. Cause I still got issue. you know what I'm saying? For example, with that, I'm not trying to explain this to you. Do, do you need to get it? And so to get around that barrier, these are assumptions that we make. Sometimes those assumptions are accurate, right? But you're trying to work around that as a barrier. So things that allow people to know coming in the door, I'm going to be valued and respected just like I am. Those are the things that help get people into care faster and help them stay in longer.
0: Right. So the culturally competent, care is, is so important and I'm sure you're aware of uh, inclusive therapists and, and melanin and, and mental health, right? All of these sites that are also trying to connect people from that regard. And I think that on the flip side, there's also the representation aspect, right? Are you seeing changes in trends in terms of people of color or people with different abilities moving into these fields?
1: No, no. That's the sad part, no, because I'm so happy you and I both, I'm sure, can relate to this for this moment because I'm old enough to remember when you could not mention racism out loud, right? Just to say that people are like, mm-hmm. and you couldn't even say it, or white supremacy? Like watching people say that on TV, every time I hear it, my head just, I'm like, wait a minute, people, you could say that now? Like, you really couldn't even say It didn't get bleeped, woman. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So I'm just like, he just said white supremacy and he's white and talking about we got to break down these white supremacy structures. I'm like, oh my God, where were you when I was 10? So, you know, seeing those changes, I think it really helps me to understand that it's possible, but we got to continue to have those conversations because you've got to be able to talk about some of those structures that keep people of different racial, ethnic ability, queer folks, out of these professions it's not just that because people want to say oh well you know we just don't know where to find them right I was faculty for 20 years I sat on plenty of admissions committees and had like little verbal knockdown drag out fights we feel like oh well they're not quite ready like I remember the time somebody said somebody's grant application was primitive and I lost it because the person was from a the person who had written the grant was from an HBCU yeah, I went nuts on that person, and so, but that's what you're dealing with, and that's the mentality that exists in a lot of these training programs. Again, speaking as someone who was faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Duke, faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Georgetown, and so I know what I'm talking about. Because in academic medicine, I had did a presentation yesterday about two percent of all women faculty in schools of medicine, MD or PhD or both, are black. It's less than 2%. It's like 1.4, right? And so if you're coming into academic medicine, just for example, it's like this in all of our professions, social work, nursing, nurse practitioner, all of that. It's all the same. And there's nobody in there who looks like you. Well, listen, I'm a researcher. Let's say you want to study disparities in kids of color. Who are you going to work with? Nobody's doing it, right? So if nobody's doing it, then how do you, right? If you can't see it, then how do you pursue it? So I think people are making little strides and efforts to try to diversify the field. But if we don't change the structures and systems, right, the way the field is set up, you can't sort of retroactively fix this stuff. You got to tear that system down in some ways. You have to build it back up so that it's inclusive. And that's what I'm all about. So I, you know, after I left academia, my goal with the nonprofit is to bring people in and give them those experiences. transformative like restorative experiences to me because that's not stuff that I had so I want them to come in yeah if you can work on uh, Native American depression and teenage of course why wouldn't we work on that so it's that kind of thing but it hasn't changed very much and right now about four percent of all psychologists this is the data that I know are black and two percent of psychiatrists I don't know other you know fields but that's it And that's bad. It's probably not that different for other fields uh, across racial ethnic groups. So it's it's just bad. We have to do better.
0: And it's interesting bringing it back full circle to young people and the youth that you're working with. You know, there have been all of these calls to defund police and change how policing happens, which you know, totally Mm -hmm. on point. And Mm -hmm. I've also been seeing though, right then there seems to be the embedded assumption that then if it's social workers or psychologists, whoever else they're bringing to deal with the youth, that mm-hmm. they don't have the same biases that perhaps some of the officers do. So what, what are your yeah, thoughts yes. on
1: that? Exactly. I think we assume that because often, I'm gonna go a little bit more macro, we assume because people come into these professions and they want to help, that they know how to help. You can't make that assumption right? Just because you want to help doesn't mean you know how to help. So, you know, I I think there's a lot to be said for, there's training that needs to happen all the way around, right? There's training that needs to happen for our police officers when they're, let's go back to mental health crises specifically, right? I think about these conversations where people are in mental health crisis and folks are like, well, just call the police. And you're like, "Uh, wait a minute, that person is Latino. And I I don't know if we want to call the police. To help that, let's figure out what can we do with a workaround. Well, then you hear to your point. Well, maybe if we had social work teams, okay? Let me add a caveat: trained, culturally competent, with some lived experience social work teams. That's really what you need. Don't just say because they're social work they get it. No, that's like any profession. I'm not going to pick on social workers, but I love social workers. But for my profession too, just because you got a PhD or a master's in psychology does not mean you know how to treat or work with all people, even those of us who are of color. Right. Maybe we have some spots around where we can't see so well, lack of awareness around LGBTQ queer issues. A lot of it is I always want these adjectives, adjectives and descriptors in the front of these titles. I want a culturally competent provider. You know what I mean? I want a, a provider who's an ally, a real active ally, not a performative ally around queer LGBTQ issues. I want an ally or I want a provider who understand disability issues, right? And then people will say, well, you can't know everything there is to know. Okay, true, but you can know something. So it's not either you know everything or you know nothing. No, there's a continuum. You need to be always learning. The same way we ask people to do CEs around ethics. I heard somebody say this yesterday on a call. Uh, they worked in the Counseling Center, a psychologist from Georgia. He said the same way we do CEs for ethics, we should do CEs for cultural competence. I was like, yes, honey, I'm here for it. Let's do it. So just to your point, yes, we need culturally competent, not just well-intentioned, but well-informed. And people talk about racial matching. One of the things I always say when I speak is racial matching is important. But I'm telling you what's more important, empathy matching. I want you to have some empathy for my plight and my experiences, right? So if you can match empathy, we can do okay even across race, even across difference. But if you can't even get there, then, you know, you can't help me. Absolutely, I think that's so
0: true, right? Because again, as a black woman, I would still need to have empathy mapping from people of different races, right. um, different sexual identities, different abilities, right. right? So that that's sense right. of being able to understand and, and not judge and also right. be, just because I haven't lived it doesn't mean that it's not valid for you. That's right,
1: that's right. That's,
0: that's, it. that's, that's it. the That's the very key piece. So what do you think of the episode so far? What are your main takeaways? Before we jump into the next segment, I have a question for you. How are you dealing with the uncertainty that this pandemic is creating? The thing is, we all have different responses to trauma. Do you tend to fight or get angry? flight or run away, or freeze, get stuck. We're all being impacted by this situation in different ways. The goal is to recognize how you respond, find healthy ways to release your anxiety, so you can take steps to thrive once all of this subsides. It is possible when you start within, and I would like to help you to do it. You can visit my website, startwithincoaching.com, and at the top, click Start Here to schedule your complimentary activation call. We can talk about what's going on in your life right now, how you are in your mental health and well-being, and where you would like to be when this all ends. So go to startwithincoaching.com and click start here to start your journey within. That's really amazing. And I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about what you're doing to walk your talk. So how do you stay sane and healthy and Thriving in all of this that we're dealing
1: with right now. Right, so I'm gonna be honest. At this point, it's not a secret. It used to be a secret. I say, if you tell anybody, I'm gonna tell them I didn't say it. All right. So now I'm honest. I don't do meetings before 10 a.m. ever, because my morning. So I'm sure there are people who gonna be listening. Yes, girl. I'm sure people who are listening like, oh, that's why she don't do that. You right? Because I spent as a uh, again, we talking about being black women. I spent in some cases wasted. 20 years of my life showing up for grand rounds, right? At 8 a.m., sometimes 7.30 a.m. Because it was mandatory. Showing up for faculty meetings, staff meetings at 8 a.m. I mm -mm, I don't have to do that because I work for me. So I don't have to be at you other meetings if I don't want to. And I also know because I'm anxious that I need the morning to literally, as my cousin taught me, get my mind right. My cousin from Mississippi, right? I got to get my mind right. So how do I get my mind right? I meditate every day. That I can't miss it, right? So before I open my eyes, when I wake up in the morning before I open my eyes, I'm already setting my intention for the day. And typically my intention is about peace, some combination of peace and love and walking, you know, walking on my path or being in Alfie's vortex, right? It's it's gotta be my positive vortex. I gotta be moving towards the stuff that's important to me. But if you don't know what's important to you, you can't walk in that path. Right? I'm always trying to walk in the light because I am a very more often than not, positive person. Sometimes I get down. But how do I stay positive? It's always being in that vortex. always being in that space of thinking about peace and love. And how can I set that for me? So no more, no means before 10 a.m., making sure that in the morning I meditate and I exercise a lot, a little bit of jogging. I hate running. I used to be a runner when I was in high school and I can't stand it, but I try to run. Okay. My obsession right now, I'm so dating myself, but I don't care because I love it is this brother named Phil Whedon. He does extreme hip hop with Phil. Step Aerobic. It's the bomb. So we're like in there, I'm stepping to uh, Buddha, the remix by T-Pain and oh my God, it's awesome. He has this old school song where you do all the old school dance. I'm in there doing the prep and oh my God, I love it, right? And that's three to four times a week and I lift weights. I love lifting, lifting weights. So, you know, I always try to cultivate, people say an attitude of gratitude. It sounds cliche and corny, but I'm always trying to cultivate Maybe not just an attitude of gratitude, but an attitude of love and peace. That's always what I'm seeking. And then the other thing that I do is when I get upset, when somebody does something and my response is to be upset, I try to take a moment and take a step back. So I, you know, because we've been on quarantine, I have two kids, my spouse and my dad lives with us. I will go outside and literally just stand on the front porch and just let the wind whip by. We live on a busy highway, you know, just that kind of stuff. So That's really important. And then with my nonprofit, one thing we just stopped doing, we'll pick it back up soon. Right around time quarantine started, we were doing midweek meditation at noon on Wednesdays for just 10 minutes through our IG page to introduce young people to what meditation looks like. So it doesn't sound so weird and hokey. It's literally just sitting and being still. I practice mindfulness meditation. So those are all things that I do. And I love shopping. So I'm always looking on shopping websites, like dreaming about stuff I want to buy. And I do vision boards. And so, and there's one, well, people can't see it, but I keep positive signs, right? I create space. So one of my signs says, live your life with intention, live the life you've always dreamed of living. And when I've done TV appearances, people can see it. And I always get these notes. So I've been like, oh my God, I love that sign. And I forget that it's there. You're like, you gotta cultivate a space around you that supports and uplifts you. You have, an, especially as people of color, we have enough beating us down day to day we shouldn't do it to ourselves. So you create space. I don't care if it's a corner of the bathroom where you got a bamboo plant. You gotta create and cultivate a healthy space for yourself. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but those are things that I do to take care of myself. I love it. Plus one on
0: everything. And <laughs> I feel like I was
1: more often than
0: not sort of the no meetings before 10, pre-COVID, pre-quarantine, yes. but post-quarantine. It's even like, you want to see me before 11? Mm, like, it's, you know, all my clients are going to be like, what? Yeah, like, no, it's like, <laughs> and by interns you're like, that's why. Yeah, yeah, because it's that sense of particularly, I think, with the quarantine and everything being virtual, I feel like that sometimes you need the extra time to be ready to, because once, once the computer is on, it's on. It's on. Yes, ma'am. Right? There's no, I don't, raising my hand for transparency, I don't take as many breaks as I should. Right. Whereas if maybe I was in a co-working space or somewhere else where you, like, right. you get up, you do, blah, 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 blah right? So I, I right. love that and i love the positive space uh and i'm also a meditator so i think uh absolutely and, and i'm also a runner so we must be like sisters from another we are honey, we are yeah. we're,
1: we're all connected we are this is just, it is what it is we soul sisters. exactly <laughs> exactly
0: so one of the other questions i ask all of my guests to share is what does start within mean to you
1: that's a great question I knew when I was preparing that this phrase and this thought was gonna come in handy, right? That there was, there was gonna be a space for me to use it. And it just like just hit me like a like a beam of light. I think the start within, what it means for me is nothing exists outside of us in this realm, in this plane, right? Of this physical plane of things we can see, touch, taste, and feel until it exists inside of us. So if I have a vision, I'm always about these visions. And if I have a vision for my life, which I do, right? It's like world domination. My family teases me. we got Dr. Alfred world domination plan. It has to exist within me. So for example, full disclosure. Years ago, I had a dream in my head about a salary. I'm just gonna just tell it all. And the salary was, I wanna make $150,000 a year, right? This was a long time ago. And I kept, I kept, I kept thinking, this is possible. This is possible. Now, PhDs in psychology not don't, we don't make that kind of money. That's not, you know, for some other, you know, they're like 150. That's nothing, right? But if a PhD psychologist as an academic, you're, you're not making that kind of money, particularly not as a person of color, right? You got a few outliers, but not really. So it was in my head, in my head. I just kept saying, I, I needed, I needed, I needed, I need to make this. It just was in my head. I had it on my vision board. And part of it was, this was around the time Barack got elected the first time. And I saw something that said what Michelle Obama's salary was. It was like public mouth. She was making $225,000 a year at Northwestern being general counsel or something that she was... And I was like, oh, I can do half. Let me let me just try to do like close to it. I can't do that. And then I remember the day that I looked back, I, I do our taxes for my family. And I saw that I had hit that and I just burst into tears. It was a little bit more. I think it was like 156, 310 or something like that for that year. And I said this was probably seven or eight years ago. And I just burst into tears because the only reason I'm telling you, this is what start from within means to me. The only reason it happened. And then I got one other quick story. I had this dream about having a Mercedes Benz SUV. Girl, I was like, I don't know how people do it. Those are so expensive. Right. This is so shallow. But I printed out a picture of it. kids were like two and like two and a half and like like an infant. And when they were little, I would say all the time, one day, mommy's going to get a Mercedes-Benz GL 350, I think it was, to the point where the kids would say it. They would go to school and say, my mommy wants a Mercedes-Benz GL 350. It took me nine years, almost to the day. And I got it on my 49th birthday. And I have a picture. I still have the picture on my vision board of the one that when they first came out. And then I have a picture of me standing beside it and there's a nine and a half year gap or I think nine and a half, 10 year gap in between. Because, like those are shallow things, but because that's what starts from within me. If you can see it inside of yourself, I think you have to start there in order to see it exist out in the world. Beyonce and Jay-Z didn't get to a billion dollars just like twiddling their thumbs. There was a vision they had inside themselves, just for an example, right? Especially where he came from. And he said, oh, I can do this. So that's what start from within means to me. That's amazing. And
0: I think the realness of the story, I, I truly appreciate and thank you for sharing. And I think nine, nine and a half ten 10 years, right? So what do you think helps to sustain you or others along that journey because I think in some ways we think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create something, I'm gonna get bought <laughs> out by this company and we're gonna make a million dollars tomorrow. So how is it that we sustain ourselves over time before things manifest?
1: Yes. I think you have to have a real I don't want to use the wrong terminology because I don't want it to be offensive. You have to have a real laser focus. That's the way I can say it on what it is that you want. I'm not saying you're constantly thinking about it to the exclusion and detriment of everything and everyone around you. I'm saying that you keep reminding yourself that it is possible. This is possible for me. When you see somebody, when I would see other people with it, I think I might've said I went to Howard and my daughter plays tennis. So we would be going to tournaments and I would see people, you know, a couple years ago, I would see people in the Mercedes-Benz SUV with a Howard bison and I'd be like, yeah, that's gonna be me. Right, and so I wouldn't get mad because they had it and I didn't have it yet. I would say, okay, this is just a sign that I can get there. And I just kept, I think that's what it is. It is an active cultivation of this idea. I may not have it yet. There's this old joke about a little, I don't even know the joke, I'm not gonna mangle it, but it's a little boy digging through horse manure. And somebody asked him, baby, what are you doing? He said, well, with all this manure, gotta be a horse in here somewhere, right? So he's got this attitude that it's in here. I just gotta keep digging. And I think that's what we have to do. But I always talk to people, I'm sure you do too with your clients, it's it's an active process. It's like active coping. You don't sit down and relax and it changes. You have to be doing something. So I remember hearing somebody say a long time ago, buy the air freshener. You remember we used to have those little Christmas tree air fresheners? Go buy you an air freshener, right? Or go buy you, and I did this, buy a keychain, Mercedes-Benz keychain. What is it like? Five bucks, 10 bucks, you get a little cheap metal keychain, and just hang it up in your room, hang it up on the wall with a thumbtack or something. And every time you see it, you remind yourself one day, there's going to be a whole Mercedes Benz surrounding it, or there's a dream job, or you want to build a tech company or whatever it is, You, you know, you have create the logo, you got these Canva and all these things that you can use the podcast. It was something like in the back of my mind. And then one day I said, well, let me get on Canva and make me a little logo. And it just sort of happens. So I think that's what it is, is baby steps every day, baby steps periodically that keep you in the mindset of whatever that thing or those things are. And they don't have to be material things. It might be, I want peace in my life. So you go cut out pictures of lotus flowers and you hang them up all over. Every time you look at the lotus, that's reminding you that you've asked for peace in your life. And as things happen, people, places and things fall away remind yourself oh they fell away because I said I wanted peace and that's drama I don't need that drama let them go please don't bring them back and so for me that's what it is and I always try to give people active simple strategies because you know people in our field we're good with the platitudes about oh you just have to be happier you just have to do people don't know how to do it so our job is to tell them how to do it give them some ideas and let them pick from this menu and maybe something will help so that's what I try to do to, to keep that focus.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's so true about visualization and figuring out what are the symbols, what's the representation. I love that the lotus flower for peace, you know, the beach is my happy place, so I can see. We are soul
1: sisters. Yes. It's not I can, vacation if it ain't a beach. Like just miss me with that. I just gotta be the beach. But I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. But I can go in my head. Like the beach is my happy place. And and I will say sadly, I have not yet been to the beach this year. Yet I could go to the beach in my head. And I have noticed through all of these months that it still brings a smile to my face to go to the beach in my mind and you know, see myself in the sand and and visualize the waves, right? So it's, it is interesting that over time doing that repetition, like I don't actually have any pictures of the beach in my space right now, but I can go there in my mind. So I think it's yes. very helpful to think if you're not there visualizing in your mind, the pictures can be that great representation before you get to that inner visualization. That's right amazing all right so yeah so i guess post COVID, we're gonna need to go to the beach we're gonna that's need to it, go girl. for a run <laughs> that's
1: right now i can't keep up with you but i'm sure i'm gonna try and I, i'm laughing because as you were talking about going to the beach in your mind i know nobody can see it but you can see it that's grease so what is and it has a thumbtack hole in it because on my vision board so that it just speaks to what you're saying it's something
0: totally lying i just realized i actually still have my vision board up from two years ago and there are pictures on the beach and that's actually a, a manifestation so i actually had a picture of a woman sitting and meditating on the beach and i had had this thought that i wanted to do like sessions on the beach and sure enough that summer we did friday feels and i connected with a friend who's a personal trainer we did a couple of friday feels at the beach last june so it is that sense of being able to have it on the board have it materialize and have it manifest but vision board created in january it wasn't until june that we were
1: actually on the beach doing the sessions and oh my god you did it my sound so next time y'all do that when we're out of cool you let me know because i will come up there just for that i love that that's fabulous
0: so in this time of covid and quarantine how can our listeners learn more about the work that you're doing here or see your podcast
1: yes so we just finished season one of the podcast and they can find the podcast at couch in color on youtube so if they just put in caustic Color, we'll come up. And I think the first episode that shows up, we have like a highlight episode, so I won't try to entice people. It's Charlemagne. So yeah, we get people to come watch Charlemagne um, and then stay and watch some of the other ones. But we try to be very representative. We have very diverse racial ethnic folks who've done the podcast because it's all about diversity and mental health with a focus on young people and young adults. So the podcast. Um, and then I'm on all the social, well, I'm not on Snapchat yet. We just got on TikTok. I can't, girl, go not even get me started. I know, I know. But it's because my social media team, because they're young and they're hip and they are they just push me in all the right, I just love them. So, which they were also on my vision board, like writing out a description of what I want. I'm not even kidding. And when I sent it to her, she burst into tears. She's like, this is me. And I was like, yes, it is. And so on socials, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Alfie, you know, just D-R and then my first name, L-F-I-E-E. On And that's the same on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, if, you know, if anybody wants to go there. And then I have a website. How can I forget the website? Com. And then basically all the same things for my nonprofit, Acoma Project. So it's acomaproject.org. We're on Instagram at A Coma Project. We're on Twitter at A Coma Project. We're also on LinkedIn at A Coma Project. So Lots of tools that people right? It's not just come look at us. We have tools and information on my website that people can use to help themselves. And we just started a five-day mental health challenge. So you can download a PDF, it's beautifully put together. And it's just five days of little things that you can do, is on the Dr. Alfie page, to take care of your mental health. Just to get your foot, like you said, kick the tires around what it means to take care of and center your mental health. So I really appreciate the question this has been wonderful for me. You are, like I said, my soul sister, you are amazing. I'm so glad we got this opportunity to talk and meet. I am too. That's
0: so amazing. And I look forward to future conversations about all of the wonderful work that you are doing through your podcast and your challenges and your nonprofit. So thank you for sharing your insights with us here on the show
1: my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and haven't already subscribed, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. You also can connect with me on Instagram at coach underscore Colette, For more inspiration on personal growth and wellness, stay tuned for another episode of Coach Chat and get ready to start within to finish strong.